Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Friday, March 3rd, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Melissa Topshire with today's top stories. A report finds half of Sri Lankan families have had to reduce their children's food intake. Robert Kennedy's assassin is denied parole for the 16th time. Olaf Scholz joins the U.S. in urging China not to provide Russia with weapons. Eli Lilly announces plans to cap insulin at $35 per month out of pocket. A U.S. House panel approves a bill allowing Biden to ban TikTok. The U.K. Navy intercepts alleged Iranian missiles headed for Yemen. An Indian court orders a bipartisan panel to select election officers. A judge allows Brian Flores' discrimination lawsuit against the NFL to proceed. Starbucks is ruled to have illegally fired workers after unionizing. And a new report finds that carbon dioxide emissions hit a record high in 2022. In our first story, half of Sri Lankan families are reducing children's food intake. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Save the Children International, WFP, France 24, and Economy Next. Child rights charity Save the Children published a report on Thursday urging the Sri Lankan government and the international community to immediately take action to prevent the country's children from becoming a lost generation. It found that half of the nation's families have had to reduce children's food intake amid shortages. After polling about 2,300 households across nine districts in Sri Lanka, the organization observed that the average household expenditure rose by 18 percent due to inflation from June to December last year, causing a 23 percent increase in households unable to meet most or all of their general basic needs. Within this span of six months, 70% of the households lost most of their sources of income, of which 54% now obtain their main earnings from seasonal and irregular jobs. This instability puts children in a precarious position, as those households can't guarantee nutritious food for their families. This comes as the island nation faces its worst-ever economic crisis, with roughly one-third of its population currently being food insecure and requiring humanitarian assistance as a result of reduced domestic agricultural production, weakening of the local currency, and scarcity of foreign exchanges reserves. On Wednesday, Sri Lankan workers went on strike, defying a government ban to protest against tax hikes and spending cuts imposed to secure an international monetary fund bailout package for the bankrupt country, which defaulted on its $46 billion foreign government debt last April. The deal with the IMF is expected to be finalized by the end of March, while China has recently granted a two-year moratorium and vowed to restructure Sri Lanka's debt. All right. On this program, we separate the spin from the facts. Those were our facts. Our narrative spins begin with narrative A from The Economist. The ongoing food shortage in Sri Lanka is the cursed legacy of deranged policies enacted by the former president, Gotabaya Rajapaksa, who imposed a total ban on agrochemicals. While there was indeed wide support to turn the island into the world's first fully organic producer of food, this process should have been phased in. Groceries began to run out forcing the country to rely on imports when foreign reserves were already in a dire situation. Narrative B comes from Organic Without Boundaries. 
a more strategic plan and a realistic time frame would certainly have worked better for the nationwide transition to organic agriculture. But blaming this decision for Sri Lanka's current food crisis is nonsensical. The origins of this crisis are in fact the country's financial crisis and its long-standing dependence on imported food and chemical inputs at a large scale, which caused the ban to be short-lived. Going organic is not a problem, but rather a solution to reduce this vulnerability and ensure sustainable and affordable food production. My take on this kind of thing it is a privilege to be able to have organic grass-fed, you know, you name the specificity of the food that you want, um, but it's a privilege because it's expensive. Um, whether it's the cause of this problem or not, probably should have thought about that ahead of time. It sure is. It didn't always used to be, right? This used to be just food. Yeah, right. Um, but so much industrialization has happened and so much chemistry has happened that we're not now trying to pull back from. It can be really head-spinning when you read about metals in this soil and pesticides. You're a health expert. How important is organic food for someone to eat? If you're getting vegetables, that's a good thing, right? It's still going to be tenfold more healthy for you to eat a non-organic carrot than it is to, to eat a bag of Doritos. Robert Kennedy's assassin is denied parole for the 16th time. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by BBC News, Independent, Politico, NBC News, Reuters, and the Associated Press. On Wednesday, Sirhan Sirhan, serving a life sentence for assassinating presidential candidate Robert F. Kennedy in 1968, was denied parole for the 16th time, despite a review board recommending he walk free in 2021. Sirhan was convicted of shooting and killing Kennedy, a New York senator and brother of John F. Kennedy, at the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles right after he won the California Democratic presidential primary. Five others were also wounded. The California panel behind Wednesday's ruling claimed that Sirhan, 78, still lacks insight into his actions that day. Sirhan's lawyer, Angela Berry, countered that he has shown awareness of the incident and that psychiatrists have said he's unlikely to be a danger to society. In a three-minute message played in September 2022, Sirhan claimed that he felt remorse every day for his actions. He was originally sentenced to death, however, this was changed to life when the California Supreme Court outlawed capital punishment in 1972. While a different panel accepted Sirhan's request for parole two years ago, the decision was overruled by Democratic California Governor Gavin Newsom. Sirhan has since sued Newsom over the matter. Barry claims that Newsom and Kennedy's surviving relatives have influenced the board members to oppose Sirhan's release. Sirhan cannot apply for parole for another three years, although he can file a petition for this to be reduced. Those were the facts, and here are the narrative spins on the issue. We'll start with a pro-establishment narrative from the L.A. Times. Sirhan hasn't developed the accountability and insight required for his parole. The murder not only deprived the nation of a promising leader during a time of national turmoil, but it also left 11 children without a father. Equally as important, his shifting narrative of claiming not to remember the crime and portraying himself as the victim to later expressing remorse shows he hasn't learned from the event and is still a risk of further violence. And the establishment critical narrative comes from the San Francisco Chronicle. For decades, the state's own psychiatrists have deemed 
that Sirhan poses no threat to society. Robert Kennedy had a Catholic belief in redemption, forgiveness, and justice, and honoring the previous board's ruling to release Sirhan would uphold these values. With some evidence pointing towards Sirhan potentially not even being the ultimate murderer, despite his indisputable role in the crime, it's time to let him go. You know, people talk about like, well, right now is the most important time. Well, right, this is the most important presidential election ever. Oh, this is the most most upheaval we've ever had. Like, I don't know if that's true. I think it was maybe a little crazier in the late 60s, right? Yeah, there just wasn't as much uh, awareness of it, right? right. Or, or as, as much uh, media coverage or right. social media coverage. Olaf Scholz joins the U.S. in urging China not to provide Russia with weapons. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Yahoo News, MSN, Newsweek, and Ukraine Forum. Ahead of a trip to the U.S. on Friday, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz followed suit with America in urging China not to provide weapons to Russia in its fight against Ukraine. Addressing the German parliament on Thursday, Scholz said, My message to Beijing is clear. Use your influence in Moscow to urge the withdrawal of Russian troops and don't deliver any weapons to the aggressor Russia. China has denied it has any intention of providing Russia with weaponry. The warning from Schultz comes as a report from Reuters, citing four U.S. officials, stated that the U.S. is consulting close allies on the possibility of imposing new sanctions on China if Beijing provides military support to Russia. The U.S. Treasury Department, which leads the imposition of sanctions, declined to comment on the report. Divides over the Russia-Ukraine conflict were also on display at the G20 summit in India, with the U.S. and European allies trading rebukes and condemnation with Russia over the war. In a video message that opened the summit, Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi urged the foreign minister to find common ground. You are meeting at a time of deep global divisions, he said. We should not allow issues that we cannot resolve together to come in the way of those we can. Meanwhile, a group of roughly 50 Ukrainian saboteurs reportedly crossed into the Russian region of Bryansk on Thursday, where they have taken at least six people hostage, according to the reports in Russian media. Russia's Federal Security Service, or FSB, has reportedly launched an operation to eliminate the infiltrators, and one civilian has reportedly been injured. One civilian was initially reported killed, but this was later corrected by local officials. In Russian attacks over the past day, four civilians were reported killed and a further eight were injured following an overnight missile strike on the city of Zaporizhia. Five people are considered missing. In attacks on Donetsk over the past day, one civilian was reported killed and five more were reported injured. Russian attacks were also recorded in the regions of Sumy, Mykolaiv, Cherniv, and Poltava, as well as in Kharkiv and Kherson, without additional reports of civilian casualties. Thanks for that rundown of the conflict, Melissa. We have a pro-establishment narrative from Yahoo News. China must be made to understand that the international community will not tolerate any attempt to aid Russia in its illegal invasion of Ukraine. Beijing's international diplomatic relationships and economy will suffer if this continues. And AP News brings us an establishment critical narrative. The U.S. has prolonged the conflict in Ukraine by intensifying its arms deliveries to Kyiv, yet it continues to spread false information about China's supply of weapons to Russia. 
U.S. sanctions are demonstrations of double standards and bullying. And from time to time, we have statistics-based nerd narratives from the Metaculous Prediction community. This one says there's a 15% chance that China will get involved in the Russo-Ukrainian conflict by the year 2024. Eli Lilly to cap insulin at $35 per month out of pocket. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by NPR Online News, Forbes, Al Jazeera, The Washington Post, and CNN. U.S. drug manufacturer Eli Lilly announced Wednesday that it will slash prices for some of its older insulin products later this year and immediately expand a cap on costs that insured patients, who currently face annual costs of more than $1,000, pay to fill prescriptions. The company said it will cut the price of its two insulin products, Humalog and Humalin, each by 70%, as well as cap the cost of commercially insured and uninsured patients' out-of-pocket costs at $35 per month. CEO David Rick said the company was working to address issues that impact the high prices patients often pay for insulin. He suggested that the discounts Lilly offered from its list prices often did not reach patients through insurers or pharmacy benefit managers. The price cut will reduce its non-branded LizPro injection price from its current cost of $82.41 per vial to $25 starting May 1st. The price of Humalog, its most commonly prescribed insulin, will drop from $530.40 for a five-pack of insulin pens to roughly $160 starting in the fourth quarter of 2023. U.S. President Biden urged the reform at the State of the Union address last month. The U.S. government in January began applying the cap through its federal Medicare program. The number of Americans with diabetes has doubled to more than 37.3 million over the past 20 years, and at least 16.5% of insulin users report rationing it due to the drug's price more than tripling between 2002 and 2013. Eli Lilly reiterated more must be done as 70% of diabetics don't use the company's insulin products. Thank you, Scott, for those facts. We'll start this round of spins with a left narrative. This is coming from PBS NewsHour. As Democrat-run California pushes for its own insulin price cap law and Biden calls on companies to do their part in making health care affordable, Eli Lilly has heeded the government's calling. As one of the largest insulin manufacturers in the world, this move could be the beginning of a genuinely transformational collaboration between the government and the private sector to ensure that diabetics get the affordable care they require and deserve. And Breitbart brings us the right narrative. The cost of insulin is not a left-right issue, but rather a race to see who can claim responsibility for finally lowering the life-saving drug's price. Donald Trump signed an executive order that did the same thing as Biden's Medicare price cap legislation, but Biden suspended it once he took office. Republican Senator Josh Hawley, too, called for a federal cap of $25, $10 lower than what Democrats are calling for. This is not a partisan win for Democrats because both sides want their constituents to have affordable medicine. A U.S. House panel approves a bill allowing Biden to ban TikTok. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, CNN, The Independent, The South China Morning Post, and USA Today. The U.S. House Foreign Affairs Committee voted 24 to 16 on Wednesday to give President Joe Biden the power to ban TikTok, the social media app owned by Chinese company ByteDance. 
The legislation was introduced last Friday and was fast-tracked by committee chairman Michael McCall. If passed, the Biden administration would have the power to ban TikTok under the International Emergency Economic Powers Act. All 24 Republicans voted for the measure, while all 16 Democrats voted against it, with ranking committee Democrat Gregory Meeks expressing concern it would damage U.S. global allegiances, send more companies to China, and undercut the American values of free speech and free enterprise. This comes amid a pending review of the app by the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, which is attempting to determine whether Beijing can undermine national security by accessing personal data via TikTok. The Biden administration has admitted it has concerns surrounding the app, with the White House recently giving federal agencies 30 days to remove it from all government-issued devices. Meanwhile, TikTok, which has been negotiating data security regulations with the Committee on Foreign Investments in the U.S. for over two years, has denied that the Chinese government has access to user data. Thanks for laying out those facts, Melissa. We have a pro-China narrative from China Daily. The current scrutiny of TikTok by the Biden administration and the West is nothing more than an ideologically motivated move. There's no evidence to support these allegations, and the hysteria in the U.S. is merely an attempt to clamp down on Chinese tech companies. The ghost of McCarthyism still haunts the U.S. through incredible paranoia surrounding anything Chinese. And here's the anti-China narrative from the New York Post. Not only are there legitimate concerns over data security, but also over the effects the app has on children, as TikTok burrows into the minds of American youth. Even if the app wasn't developed specifically as a Chinese propaganda tool, it has certainly become one. The fact that China's domestic version, Yin limits those under 14 to educational videos shows its intentions for the outside world. And we have a nerd narrative. This one says there's a 22% chance that the U.S. will ban TikTok before 2024, according to the Metaculous Prediction community. Melissa, the real loser here are all the gals who are trying to get my attention on TikTok. And judging by how small their yoga pants are, they really need my help. They need bigger yoga pants? Yeah, I think, apparently, (laughs) that's what it looks like. (laughs) The British Navy intercepts Iran missiles likely headed for Yemen. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, the Times of Israel, Iran Wire, the U.S. Naval Forces Central Command, the Associated Press, and MSN. The British Royal Navy said on Thursday that it had seized anti-tank missiles and fins for ballistic missile assemblies during a raid on a small boat heading from Iran. It added that the boat was likely headed to Yemen in the Gulf of Oman when it was raided on February 23rd. The boat reportedly contained Russian NM-133 Cornet anti-tank guided missiles, and small fins that the U.S. Navy identified as jet vanes for medium-range ballistic missiles. It was also carrying impact sensor covers designed to be placed on the tips of the ballistic missiles. The U.S. Navy said the seizure happened along a route historically used to traffic weapons unlawfully to Yemen. Under a U.N. Security Council resolution, arms transfers to Yemen's Houthi rebels are banned. In the past three months, the U.S. and U.K. maritime forces have reportedly seized more than 5,000 weapons, 1.6 million rounds of ammunition, 30 anti-tank guided missiles, and $80 million worth of illegal drugs in the Gulf of Oman. 
Iran allegedly backs Houthi rebels in Yemen who seized the capital of Sana'a in 2014 and have since been fighting the internationally recognized government. While the Houthis maintain their grip over the north and west, the government and militias hold the south and east. The war in Yemen has largely devolved into a stalemate, creating one of the world's worst humanitarian crises. More than 150,000 people have been killed in Yemen during the conflict, including over 145,000 civilians. We'll start this round with an anti-Iran narrative provided by Times of Israel. Russia-backed Iran, which considers the Houthis part of an axis of resistance against Israel and the United States, is providing arms, training, and financial support to the rebels to increase their ability to put significant pressures on U.S.-backed Saudi Arabia. The seizure of a weapons cache from an Iranian ship is the seventh such interdiction in the last three months, demonstrating Iran's increasing malign maritime activity in the region. And IFP News brings us the pro-Iran narrative. The Houthis are neither Iranian proxies nor puppets. In fact, Iran has publicly advocated in favor of a diplomatic solution in Yemen. Western accusations that Iran supplies Houthi rebels with advanced weapons are politically motivated and designed to mislead the public. Those supplying arms to aggressors and enablers of the blockade of the oppressed people of Yemen are in no position to accuse others. And we have another nerd narrative on the topic, saying there's a 50% chance that Iran will possess a nuclear weapon before 2030. That's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. Melissa, on the average day, do you think at all about, like, total destruction or, like, like existential humanity-type problems? Does that even cross your mind? Oh, no, I take a pill for that, Scott. (laughs) I do, too. We turn our heads to India, where a court orders a bipartisan panel to select election officers. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, The Hindu, NDTV, and Reuters. India's Supreme Court has ordered the creation of an independent panel to appoint members of the Election Commission. It will include the Prime Minister, Chief Justice, and either the leader of the opposition in the lower House of Parliament or the opposition party with the highest number of House members. The ruling comes after the current election commissioner, Aaron Gohl's, appointment process took less than 24 hours. He was appointed to a term of five years, with the court calling a tenure of less than six years a clear breach of the law, citing Section 4.1 of the 1991 Election Commission Act. Gohl, a former Indian administrative service officer who retired on November 18th, was appointed EC a day later and took charge on November 21st, with the court questioning the swift process. Under the current system, the president, who generally abides by the advice of the ruling government, appoints the chief EC and two commissioners for a tenure of six years each. The Election Commission is an autonomous governing body established to oversee the nation's elections. Opposition parties have accused it of being biased toward the ruling party, allegations the commission has denied. Gulf News brings us Narrative A. As was likely the case with Arn Gohl and many other election-related peculiarities in recent years, the ruling regime uses its power to appoint commissioners who are biased toward the incumbent government that appointed them. The ruling addresses the unconstitutional actions taken by the ruling party, and hopefully, the world's largest democracy is now set on a path of transparency. Narrative B comes from Op India. 
While the high court rightly pointed out that election regulation should not be taken lightly, the Constitution doesn't actually provide details regarding who selects commissioners. The newly mandated panel has no constitutional ties, and thus, this is an arbitrary ruling. This drastic change in election law could also have unforeseen consequences, with the next election only a year away. And now news from the National Football League, as a judge allows Brian Flores's lawsuit to proceed. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, the Associated Press, CNN, WNYW New York, Fox News, and NBC News. The NFL and three of its teams must face trial after a judge rejected the option of arbitration to settle former head coach and current Vikings defensive coordinator Brian Flores' accusation of discriminatory hiring practices. Flores sued the NFL and teams after being fired as the Miami Dolphins' head coach, alleging systemic racial discrimination against black coaches for top coaching and management jobs. While Judge Valerie Caproni's ruling allowed Flores' lawsuit against the NFL and three teams, the Denver Broncos, New York Giants, and Houston Texans, to proceed, it also said that his case against the Dolphins must be settled through arbitration. Two other coaches, Steve Wilkes and Ray Horton, joined Flores' lawsuit, but their respective discrimination cases against the Arizona Cardinals and Tennessee Titans must go through arbitration as well. Caproni called the coaches' descriptions of racial discrimination troubling and said the NFL has a long history of systematic discrimination toward black employees. Flores' attorney, Douglas Wigdor, said he was pleased with the ruling. While the NFL did not get all cases pushed to arbitration, it stated that it is also pleased with the ruling and will proceed with the upcoming arbitration and litigation. The league maintains its commitment to diversity and inclusion and says it will continue to do the necessary work to uphold its commitment. Thanks, Scott. Dead Spin brings us a left narrative. The NFL desperately wanted to keep Brian Flores' case against them behind closed doors and handled it via a biased arbitration. Thankfully, Flores' claims of discrimination will go to trial, where the NFL's racism will be brightly displayed. NFL coaches, executives, and players have faced bigotry for decades. It's finally being exposed. And the Washington Examiner brings us the right narrative. Brian Flores is right about one thing in his lawsuit against the NFL. There is racial discrimination in hiring. However, it's not against black coaches. The NFL has been implementing rules that require teams to hire anyone other than white males. From staff requirements to free draft picks, the league is doing whatever it can to pursue an unfair, woke agenda. A judge rules that Starbucks illegally fired workers after unionizing. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CBS, CNN, Q13 Fox, Truth Out, and BBC News. On Wednesday, U.S. National Labor Relations Board, or the NLRB, judge Michael Rosas ruled that Starbucks had illegally fired seven workers in New York in an alleged retaliation against unions and ordered the former employees' reinstatement. The case revolved around unionization efforts in Buffalo, New York and included 32 unfair labor charges made by Workers United against Starbucks for its actions between August 2021 and July 2022 at 21 Buffalo-area stores, including the company's first location to unionize. 
Rosa's 200-page ruling, which found the company had committed egregious and widespread misconduct, also ordered Starbucks to compensate 27 other workers for alleged violations, such as not granting time off, and required it to reopen its branch in Cheektowaga. It also requires Starbucks to post a 13-page notice listing its alleged labor violations in all its U.S. stores. It also ordered CEO Howard Schultz to participate in a reading of employee rights and distribute a recording of it to all U.S. employees. This comes as Senator Bernie Sanders, independent of Vermont, announced the setup of a vote to subpoena Schultz after the CEO declined to testify in a hearing about employees' unionization efforts on March 8. Starbucks, which has recently raised pay and made other changes amid employee grievances, defended its actions as lawful and in line with policies after around 270 stores of the approximate 9,000 in the U.S. voted to join unions last year. The Guardian brings us the left narrative spin. Faux progressive Starbucks is doing whatever it can to stop its workers from unionizing even if it means resorting to illegal retaliation against workers, and this is unacceptable. Workers in all industries deserve the right to unionize and collectively bargain. This ruling will go a long way to ensuring this. And the right narrative comes from the Daily Wire. Woke Starbucks workers are milking the current unionization frenzy simply so that they can work less for the same money and benefits. And with each demand, the quality of each location deteriorates rapidly. Ironically, however, unions can't come close to the benefits that Starbucks can offer. Rather than obstructing progress and making boisterous accusations, employees would be better off benefiting from the changes Starbucks can make unilaterally. And the nerd narrative comes from Metaculus. They say there's a 50% chance that at least 12% of American workers will be represented by a labor union in the year 2030. Melissa, as a frustrated creative who is uh, unable to convert whatever limited talent I have into uh, economic gain, while paradoxically also being able to afford $7.50 coffee and work on a $2,000 computer, I've spent plenty of time in a Starbucks. How about you? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know how to follow that. <laughs> what, are your, <laughs> what are your thoughts on Starbucks, the, the coffee? It's fine. Now, you live in Seattle, which, again, paradoxically, is not the best place for Starbucks because there's so much other good coffee. There's so what much I, good coffee here. What I have found is I really find Starbucks like a lifesaver when I'm somewhere that doesn't have good coffee and then you're going to get oh it's yeah. wow starbucks oh that's it's pretty good but also sometimes i go because i'm a busy person who works a you know I, i'm also a frustrated creative who's trying to pull things together by working too many jobs so yep. a starbucks drive through i know what i'm getting i get my my tall drip or my and then i get the egg bites i've got food right it's yep. like the it's a bougie mcdonald's a nice job they they've they created and then filled a niche uh, which sure, is yeah. pretty smart <laughs> they sure did yeah i i got no qualms with the uh, with the product as a consumer i do really and as somebody who's just very addicted to caffeine sure i really appreciate starbucks they have figured out which a lot of like concert t-shirts and stuff are figuring this out too like 
make the stupid expensive stuff that you sell like look cool and then people will be more likely to buy it. You know, it used to be like we're going to have a white mug with whatever on it or you know, this right. Bon Jovi concert just going to have a picture of a record on it or something. I don't know what it is. And then now that like concert shirts and like cool mugs at Starbucks are all getting like cool looking or maybe I'm getting lamer. An International Energy Agency, or IEA, report released on Thursday said global energy-related emissions of carbon dioxide rose by 0.9% in 2022 to a record 36.8 billion tons. Carbon dioxide is produced by burning fossil fuels, oil, coal, or natural gas, to power vehicles, homes, and factories, and is a greenhouse gas. Emissions from coal grew 1.6% as a result of a global switch to coal in the face of the high price of natural gas since Russia invaded Ukraine. A 2.5% increase in emissions from burning oil was largely caused by an increase in airline travel in 2022, with the aviation sector being responsible for about 50% of the oil burned. Extreme weather, including droughts and heat waves, also reportedly increased the demand for electricity and lessened the reliability of hydropower thus increasing the demand for fossil fuels. Renewables accounted for 90% of the global growth in electricity supply, which reportedly prevented emissions from spiking higher. This IEA report was released weeks after most of the major fossil fuel-producing companies, including Chevron, ExxonMobil, and Shell, reported record profits. Thanks, Scott, for the facts on our final story. We'll start this round of spins with narrative A from Time. Fossil fuel consumption has put the world on the road to ruin, and there's no sign of it stopping. China and Europe slowed their industrial production last year, but if they resume at previous levels, there will be even more carbon emitted and less chance of saving the planet. This report is a very serious development. Narrative B comes from the Wall Street Journal. For all those predicting doom for the world, this report shows that market forces are pushing renewable energy sources to the fore, and they prevented a larger increase in carbon emissions than what occurred. As it turns out, as fossil fuels have increased in price, renewables have become a popular alternative. Natural market forces are working well when it comes to carbon dioxide emissions and the energy sector. The nerds have the last word today with our final narrative from the Metaculous Prediction community stating there's a 50% chance that global CO2 emissions will peak by December 2035. Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Friday, March 3rd, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Melissa Topshire, inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News. Improve the News.